0: Welcome to Antioch Raleigh's weekly online sermon. We hope that you are encouraged by this word. For more information on Antioch Raleigh or access to our other online sermons, visit us at antiochraleigh.com. The word I want to share today is, in a lot of respects, I feel a real good weight, a weightiness about it, how important it is for us as a people and for us as individuals. And um, I'm, I'm also quite sure I'm not going to be able to get it all done today, but uh, we've been talking for the last several, uh, really a couple of months of this year, and we're winding, we're going to close kind of our, our theme of our, our core values. But we're going to continue talking about the whole idea of relationally and emotionally healthy discipleship, of what it really looks like for us to be a people of God and what we look like as the people of God and how we, we have some challenges. But today I wanted to, one of the things I've been kind of systematically going through each week is just what are some of the metrics of the kingdom that we want to be pursuing and what are, what are what is success and what's not success and I want to just start out with a little story uh, in 2016 I was uh, Brenda and I went to Frankfurt Germany to, to go uh, and be in one of the biggest cities in Germany that was receiving tons of of these uh, refugees out of the Middle East uh, all Muslims, uh, and they were, we thought most of them were going to be out of uh, Syria. Well, it turns out they were literally coming from all over the Middle East, millions, and most of them were young men. And uh, during that time, I, I was introduced through um, uh, a guy who works with the Southern Baptist. Uh, he had, he was discipling this young man who was, what I came to be found out later is there's only a few hundred men in the entire Islamic world that had as high achievement academically and spiritually as this young man had achieved uh, before the age of 32. He was, he was from a religious family in Islamabad, Pakistan. Um, he had been sent to Greece to uh, be a spiritual um, guide to terrorists who were planning to do destruction and wreak havoc in that part of the world. Um, He was supposed to blend in. And when he... uh, So he stayed at this Greek uh, family's home. It turns out they were very devout Greek Orthodox lovers of Jesus. And... uh, they were very kind to him. And of course, he Reza, as he tells the story, hated them. And he, he said, but the problem was they kept loving me. And every time I would have a bad attitude toward them, he said, Of course, I had to pretend I had a good attitude. So I would smile when in fact um, my smile was a drawn sword. And he said that um, he just he would he would try to. Re, rebuff the uh, the love they were showing him by imagining killing them and um, he eventually got reassigned and got, brought back to Pakistan, but before he left, they gave him a bible. Now, the level of uh, knowledge that he had as a uh, imam in uh, in Islam, Sunni Islam, was at such a high level because he could read, he had memorized the entire Quran in the Arabic of the Quran. That's, that's who he was. And so he had this New Testament and Old Testament, and he began to read the New Testament. And over the next, and because he was a very bright guy and he had been it was very learned and he had been exposed to a lot of discussion and thought about Christianity and Judaism um, and of course he was in uh, the, of the opinion that those things needed to be eradicated uh, but as he read the, the scriptures something began to transpire and he eventually became a believer in Jesus which was a very bad thing because I when he began to share that with all of his family, they they began to um, they, they issued a fatwa, which is an assassination assignment. So he had to escape. He got a phone call from a, one of his closest friends. He said, this is the last act of kindness I'll ever do in your life. But if you don't leave your house in the next five minutes, you will be dead tomorrow. So he escaped. He ran across the border. He ran into Dave Weston, who began to disciple him. And Reza began to just lead hundreds of Muslims to Jesus, partly out of his um, experience, but he said he had a he had a secret weapon. He, because I I'd heard this about Reza, so I was wanting to Reza, please teach me. And Reza's like 35 years old by now, and he's 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 this young man, and I'm like. Teach me, because we're, we're, we're seeing hundreds of these young men. What do I need this? Oh, he says, there's a secret. Oh, it's so easy. It's such a great secret. He says, this secret changes everybody that hears it. I just simply have to read it to them. I'm thinking, that's it? And he, he's just so... And finally, it's like, Reza, okay, can you tell me what this is? And he goes it's in your new testament and i'm thinking what could that be i'm like i know my new testament what's he talking about it's a secret and he says it was written by the apostle paul and it's in corinthians and it's that 13th chapter on love And the minute he said that, I felt such conviction because I read the 13th chapter of Corinthians and I go, wow, that's, that's really neat. <laughs> I want us to read a couple of scriptures. Miles. if you'll throw up, I want, I'm just gonna read them, I'm gonna read them slowly they're not neat they're profound and i'm not going to read first corinthians 13 but i would advise all of you to slowly read it out loud today as part of your devotion first john three one through three see what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of god and that is what we are the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure." Now, I'm gonna switch immediately to the Message Bible, and I'm doing Ephesians 3, 14 through 20. And I just love the way Eugene Peterson says this. My response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father, who parcels out all of heaven and earth. I ask him to strengthen you by his Spirit, Not, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength that Christ will live in, you, live in you as you open the door and invite him in. <laughs> and I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all the followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth. Test the length. Plumb the depths, rise to the heights, live full lives, full in the fullness of God. God can do anything, you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working with us, His Spirit deeply and gently within us. Glory to God in the church, glory to God. In the Messiah, in Jesus, glory down all generations, glory through all millennial. Oh, yes. Now that's a translation. And then finally, Galatians 4. And I said 1 through 7, but that's wrong. I'm just doing one verse 6. And because we are his children, God has spent, sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out. Abba, Father, now you are no longer slaves but God's own child, and since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Father, I just ask that you'd help me to communicate your heart today, this morning. In Jesus' name, our, our Lord, and for his sake, Amen. Um, we've kind of been examining what we don't want to count as success and we've kind of gone through those, but the last thing I want to do is to just say that success does not look almost ever the way we evaluate success can I just say that again? success almost never looks like how we evaluate success from heaven's perspective. Um, Success is when you become the message, not the number of those that listen to your message. And you always impart who you are and not what you know. I always like to remind us, North Carolina has, in my opinion, the greatest motto of any state in the union, to be rather than to seem. That's our motto. You know, talk about authenticity. I'm going to talk a little more about authenticity later. So the, so the correct building standard of spiritual maturity, what is it? Well, I've just been hitting on it, but it may not be quite obvious. But today, my, the message is the right standard for spiritual maturity is agape. Now, That may be a term some of you may have heard, some of you may never have heard, but that is a Greek, that's an English transliteration of a Greek word. Agapa. Agape. I'm not sure. Craig, I think I'm close. Uh, But the point is, we just Americanize it and call it agape. Kind of like the fish, guppy, but agape. And... uh, Okay, That's real. I had to throw in a bad joke before we get too, too far into this, right? All right, so um, our, one of our mottos in, in Antioch is to love God, love others, and make disciples. Love God, love others, and make disciples. And we, have, we teach this to our kids to make disciples that actually look like Jesus above all else, we must love them. We must agape them. If we love them, then everyone around them and us will notice the difference. Then and only then can we say we truly love the Lord, for he has established the bar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot... All right, let me, let me just... I don't like that word let's say probably not or in some exceptional cases may not that's not what John said he said you cannot love God whom they have not seen you know John just didn't I you know he was not a very compromising preacher in my opinion when he says stuff like that so this agape love is a unique word in the new testament and it really wasn't that common a greek word and in fact the 1 corinthians 13 the famous love chapter is actually the in my opinion the first bible dictionary section in the bible because it is the complete dictionary fulfillment of what agape is all about. It is the definition of agape love. And it's fascinating why Paul wrote that. And and most of us even, I mean, you, you see it quoted even by secular people. And so it has permeated our culture, even a culture that despises the. The Scripture and even His, our, our Lord and Savior. So, what is the definition of agape? Well, I'm going to give you an abbreviated version of it. Agape love is unconcerned with self, and concerned with the greatest good of another. It is God's immeasurable, incomparable love for humankind. It is his ongoing, outgoing, self-sacrificing concern for the lost and fallen people. God gives this love without condition, unreservedly, to those who are undeserving and inferior to himself. That's a mouthful. Agape love is unmotivated, according to Anders Nigren in the sense that it's not contingent. And this is really important. It's not contingent on any value or worth in the object of love. It is spontaneous and heedless for it does not determine beforehand whether love will be effective or appropriate in any particular sense. Now, you know, as I'm talking here, I realize I'm actually talking to mostly folks that are probably at a level of education that is above high school and everything i'm saying would go over the heads of 90% of the people in the world and maybe some of the people in this room and that's absolutely part of the point i'm going to make today later on because no one can understand love intellectually and they never have can i get an amen you I didn't walk down the aisle with Brenda saying, I need to really love her. I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i going to have to spend the rest of my life with her and I'm really, I, I know it's the right thing. I mean, she is a, yeah, she is good looking. <laughs> that is not what the, what was going on in my head. That, in fact, I don't know what was going on in my head, but I knew what was going on in my heart. And it hasn't stopped. It hasn't stopped. Amen. <laughs> so the question is, how do we develop agape? Well, I want, to, I want you to listen. Maybe you throw this verse up there. How do we develop agape? Uh, it's really just part of a verse. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm separating it out just so you know it's not but it is in context. But it's 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 Jesus giving us a clue about this agape love. And by the way, when you see a, the word love in the New Testament, m- most of the time that word is the word agape. And this this word that had had it was almost as if the New Testament writers used that word it wasn't used that often in the Greek language and everyday parlance. It was used for the people of God. And so 1 Corinthians 13 is the dictionary for the agape. And, but then the question is, okay, I, 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 get the, I get it all up here. My left brain analytical processor is, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm tracking with you, Steve. I'm not that dumb. I get it. Well, here's, here's another thing Jesus said. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Now, can I just tell you the way a lot of us translate that in our head is if I obey Jesus, I love Jesus. That's not what Jesus said. He said, if you love me, you will obey me. Not if you obey me, you will love me. There's one thing I probably have done way more than I wish I'd done. is to make the people of God feel like they're obligated to love God. When in fact what I really want to do for the people of God is to get them to fall in love with God so that they will obey God. And that's actually the goal of all of our instruction, which is agape. Agape toward the Lord. That's what Jesus said. I mean, Jesus, Jesus was very good at, at, at summarizing seminary. He basically said, Well, if you want to know the whole kit and caboodle, all your courses up to the 700 level courses, here's the deal love God and love your neighbor. Agape God and agape your neighbor. And you go, oh, okay, well, I understand that. And he knew that you'd get it right here, but he also knew you wouldn't get it right here. And there, this is a process that is, I'm, I'm really trying to parse this out so you really begin to uh, think from the inside of your insides and not just up here in your noggin. Okay. Love precedes obedience, not the other way around. Love always trumps duty and obligation. As I like to quote Mike Bickle, he said, lovers will always outwork workers. Lovers will always outwork workers. And a a perfect example is a mom and dad who've lost a child and all the rescue squad and the police and the volunteers come out and they comb the woods and after a week or so they quit because they haven't found the child and what is, that, what is that? What are those parents are doing? What are they doing? Maybe even for years they're walking, looking. So, how do you develop this kind of love? I mean, okay. So the question we ask ourselves is, okay, Lord, I know you've commanded me to love you and love my neighbor, and I, frankly, sometimes don't feel like I do either very well. Well, it's, it's fascinating to me how sometimes the Lord goes, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to use the theologians to teach this. I'm going to use the scientists to teach this. And a recent uh, body of study out of, well, it's really universities all over the world now, but since the 1990s. Um, and they coined the term, and a lot of us now use the term, it's called attachment. How many of how you have ever heard that term, attachment? Attachment is a term that a lot of psychologists use, and it's, it's a phenomena that happens when infants emotionally attach to their parents. And psychologists, and, and particularly foster care systems and orphan systems, Uh, have identified that one of the major challenges to our society is children that become adults that have never had a healthy, quote, attachment to their parents. And that is actually at a a gargantuan uh, epidemic these days. And so, so what is attachment? Well, let me just read you a little bit. Attachment is the essential force or glue in developing a strong identity and the forging of a strong moral character that can maintain relationships. Our primary identity and the apex of the neurological construct control structure of the brain, now listen carefully, is a relational one, not a cognitive one. That's kind of a fancy way of saying in your noggin, the part that actually makes you a healthy human being has very little to do with your knowledge base. It has to do with something much, much deeper, and it is in a part of your brain that actually is not, you may not even be aware of. So how do we deeply attach with and to God? See, here's the, when I begin, one of the, one of the challenges, let me, let me back up and start that way. I think this is one of the challenges that every pastor and every spiritual leader I know that cares deeply wonders about is why is it that the American church uh, has so many podcasts and so many sermons and so much information and so much, um, so much. And yet, in so many ways, our lives don't seem to change that much, especially after the first few years of our walk with Jesus, and sometimes they stay moribund and, and sideways for decades. And that's a question I've had. And one of the things that I, it dawned on me is this why have, what, what is, what's the, what's the, ex, what's the explanation of people that just keep, keep seeming to, advance and burn and go and and grow and and hunger after God and and transform what's the key to that and what these these scientists are now saying is you can talk to people until you're blue in the face with information and it won't change them one iota But what transforms people is when they belong to somebody. And they have a deep sense of the affection and the love of that somebody to whom they belong to. And part of what I think has happened, and I've used this illustration before, but I'm more convinced of it than ever before, is that so much of God's people have been born again But they've never attached to the Father who loves them. And they're like orphans. And they wonder why they can't build a relationship with Him or each other. And I believe with all my heart that the baptism in the Holy Spirit that happened on the day of Pentecost... Was not primarily so they could get a Gee Whiz gift of, of languages, even though I think that's important. I think that's germane to this whole subject. But but it was to to light their fire of their heart for the the and 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 let and, I me. Mean, how do I say this? It's not so they could love God. That's the antecedent result, our outcome is so they could know how much God loves them. Yes. You see, one of the things I'm changing the way I'm discipling people is not asking, them, well, how, what do you, what, what's the Lord saying to you? Or even "Well, what, what, what's God speaking to you? Or, or maybe how, how are you loving the Lord? You know what I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to, and I'll just say it. I'll just pretend I'm discipling all y'all. This morning, are you asking the Lord how He loves you? And then be quiet and listen. Because we don't love Him first, we're responders. He's the original lover, He is pursuing us. He's never stopped pursuing us. All right. I'm getting through my didactic teaching points because I want to get to something that's not so didactic. So attachment is the strongest force in the human brain. It's not an emotion, although we feel it strongly. I'm summarizing about 10 different books I've read. And attachment runs deeper in the brain below willful control. Attachment is the best word scientists could, come, could find for what glues people together and children to their parents. It produces an enduring care for the well-being of another. Attachment is a life-giving, forever bond with no mechanism in the brain to unglue it. If God has an enduring love for us that brings us good, the only force in the human brain that can understand such lasting kindness and care is the brain's attachment system that lies almost entirely in the subconscious or preconscious. This attachment system located in the right brain of all humans operates below the conscious level. Dr. Wilder calls it the pre-conscious level. This makes so much sense regarding attachments. Infants do not, nor do they ever, have a conscious thought in the early stages in the womb or outside the womb. But they do have a great deal of brain activity. It all happens in the bright brain, however. They know no words. They don't know who their mommy or their daddy is. Yet in healthy families, even in the womb, babies begin to inexplicably identify with their parents. Brain science research has documented that fathers who gently talk to their children while in the room have a much easier time soothing their newborns um, than a father who does not. The attachment to dad simply begins earlier. If infants don't make these early attachments, they are destined to a lifetime of alienation and difficulty in nearly every relationship they enter. The good news: a team of neurotheologians who are exploring this phenomenon of attachment through application of agape are seeing remarkable results in very broken, addicted and dysfunctional people, regardless. If they failed to attach to their biological parents or caregivers. In other words, our minds can be renewed and rewired as adults. This, however, is more difficult process than in babies. But we're discovering ancient pathways of early the early church that are actually the best practices to renew the brain. And we've mostly abandoned those in the Western modern church and that's what we're going to start talking some about over the next several months it's like the father uh, excuse me Um, but here's the critical element about that process this mind renewal is not primarily at the left brain which is what I'm talking to right now remember I say a lot of times nobody's ever been discipled through a sermon and I'm not trying to Denigrate the left brain. The left brain is great for prob- problem solving. It's all the thing that you guys are getting taught over at NC State. And it's, it's most of what we do when we run our businesses. There's a lot of, there, it's not that the left brain is a bad thing. And, and everybody that's ever tested me says I'm a left brain thinker. But there is something deep inside of me that makes me a right brain. And the more I get in touch with it, the more I realize how much that's where god operates below the subconscious all these transformations in thinking and healthy process of human interactions and the accompanying responses and perceptions all develop in the much faster processing power of the right brain at the speed of such subconscious thought like infants who long for pure milk of the word, understanding is not cognitive. Cognitive. I mean, have you guys ever thought about? I, this has just begun to hit me. Long for the pure milk of the word like an infant. Okay, well, infants can't understand words. So what? what, what so what is the apostolic writer saying there? we impart who we are not what we say this explains why so much of our teaching training and discipleship in the American church life can be so effective I I say can be because there are exceptions some individuals do experience a deep transformation with relatively non-relational church atmospheres. What we are discovering is that those people generally have really deep, healthy attachments to their parents, regardless of their parents' faith. In other words, they know how to form relational bond with others and including God. The main way transformation occurs in, is in the deep, loving community with deep, multi-generational connections. That's why fellowship with the back of someone else's neck on Sunday morning hardly registers on the transformation index for most people. That's why we emphasize life groups here, but even that can be lacking. So that's why we have emphasize eating In life groups, because the Bible talks a lot about love feasts, and there's something about gastrology that transforms your life when you eat it with other believers. I can hear it. I sound right. Amen. So this may explain so why so many good their members into the image of Jesus. So here's what I want to do. I want to quit talking to you on the left brain and I want to talk to you a little bit on the right brain. I hope I, I, I'm actually just kind of reading you some stuff from my own meditations, kind of left brain meditations, or right brain meditations. God is not tolerating you. He does not love you because Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins because he loves you. It wasn't like the Father was brooding off in heaven while the Son was here trying to make us more acceptable to the Father. That image of God is from hell. No, at the center of all existence is a being whose essence is love. The triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit initiated a daring rescue mission out of love for wayward children who who'd chosen to follow someone else. Heedless to his incredible foreknowledge that we would reject him, God pledged, uh, plunged onward with his desire to create someone to love. And that someone was you. This was all because of God's essential desire to express his loving kindness. God would literally alter his physics He would become a man and then subjugate himself to humankind's worst treatment. The result would be an altering of his new human body permanently with nail-scarred hands and feet. This was the physical altering of God, the son's body in a brutally tangible and visible way that was for us to see and touch. Jesus's tormented and tortured dead body was carried to the tomb. Now, what other scars and wounds our beloved triumph God endured at our hand mostly remains hidden in metaphysical secrets, unseen. And I believe they remain unseen because of his humility and grace. The point here is not as theological as it is emotional. God did this all out of an incomprehensible loving compulsion, that is essential to his nature. Sure, there are all kinds of deep covenantal aspects of the redemption story that are true and important and they even can be microscopically technical. Unfortunately, far too many of us get lost in these details failing to see the very emotional heart of God, the very real individual person of the Lord himself. In so much of our theology, we attempt to discover God's rational thoughts, but never dare to discover God's genuine emotions. None of those so-called theological factors hold a, holds a fraction of the importance. And let me be clear. They are important, but they are immeasurably less important than God's eternal, inestimable Unconditional, passionate, emotional love for you. Let me say it another way. God is not suffering from a lack of attachment love for you because of all your spiritual immaturities, bad behaviors, and misdeeds. He's not white-knuckling his will to overcome his revulsion of you to love you. Regrettably, that's how a lot of us have been taught God's love. He really doesn't like us at all, but well, he's God, so he kind of holds his eternal nostrils and loves us with a sheer determination of will and rationalistic thought. Probably don't have all those words in that, but that's the way you think. This is more an outcome of the age of reason or the so-called enlightenment than careful reading of the scripture. Yet, like so many philosophies of the world rooted in denial of a personal loving God found in Jesus, we find ourselves among those who are professing themselves to be wise but becoming foolish. Whether you're born again or not, his affections for you has never, nor will it ever change. For those who reject Jesus, their rejection of him is the ultimate rejection of themselves. They're rejecting the person that God desires them to be. They, they would deny themselves the source of life, peace and joy. This rejection of God in the face of Jesus is causing their death by their own hand. And that is an eternal kind of death. But it's the logical and inevitable consequence of their rejection of both him and themselves. If you're an atheist, you're a person of ultimate self-loathing. Why? None of us can realize our identity without acknowledging our parentage. And sin is the autoimmune disease of human identity. We reject ourselves as God intended us to be. This orphan planet is attempting with all its might to alienate us from the Father God but he is gently wooing us by his Holy Spirit. And as our world attempts to cast off any notion of God, it descends into the madness of foolishness and bizarre self-loathing with an endless array of false identities. We take on and shed fallacious identities like changing clothes. And the further we entrench ourselves in the denial of our creator, the more hopelessly confused our culture is becoming. But here's the good news. The heart of the gospel. Our bizarre, rejecting, anti-God behavior does not change the Father's affection for us, one iota. He is not dissuaded, discouraged, or dismayed. He is determined, daring, devoted, and dauntless. He loves you because he's the God who is, by self-definition, essential love. God's DNA is love. For love to be love, it must have an object of its affection. And this is no human fickle love. Love, the God kind of love, expects nothing in return. That in itself defies comprehension. His love is fierce and loyal and passionate and generous and forgiving, and patient. And did I say loyal? He's loyal to you when you betray him. As Judas was betraying Jesus, he kissed him on the cheek. Here's Jesus' reaction. He called him friend, knowing exactly what he was doing. The the authentic, instinctive response of God in in the flesh erupted in Jesus. Jesus' unchanging, steady temperament remained loyal to Judas in the face of Judas' treachery. And whatever you see in the Son, you see in the Father and the Holy Spirit. For those of us who are born again, he is loyal when we betray ourselves by living contrary to the new person he's recreated us to be. When I say God's love is emotional, I don't mean sentimental or foolish or self-gratifying, nor do I want to imply that it's all willpower either. His love is enduring, patient, persistent, demonstrable, His love acts. His love does indeed feel deeper than any of us can feel anything. He doesn't just have sentimental feelings, though, with no action. His love is the love of a mother running into a burning building after her children disregarding certain death. On the other hand, I don't know if you can... I don't know if this makes you want to worship, but it, this was my worship. On the other hand, his loving self constraint keeps him from inserting himself into our lives boisterously and arrogantly, taking over while disregarding our wishes or even our preferences. Everything you see that exists does so by the word of his power. Even so, God is inconspicuously self constrained and humble. He has granted you a will and a mind and a body that you can possess and can do with it what you want. That is God not controlling you. That God is not controlling you is essential to his nature. Yes, he's in charge of the cosmos and that involves controlling inanimate systems. But when was the last time you did anything that you did not choose to do? Freedom for those he loves is part and parcel of God's good and perfect nature. He'll never betray his own essential nature. Thus, he will never, ever betray you either. He is reliable beyond the universe. Even when it feels like he's not, that's because he's the ultimate in authenticity, meaning he is true to himself. He doesn't intervene in our lives to make himself look better. Most of us are desperate to get out of pain and difficult circumstances, especially with other people, so we try to control them. God simply won't do that. He can tolerate relational pain without without Him having to withdraw from us. To do so would betray who He is. Sometimes it seems God's indifferent, but that is never the truth. He sees the beginning from the end, He is a gardener and he anticipates a fruitful outcome of enduring character that looks a lot like his. Authentic people never betray their own identity. However, they will subject themselves to great vulnerability. Vulnerability is all the fad these days as a rediscovered virtue. I think its newest version is a little pale compared to Jesus's undisputed championship title. His vulnerability is incomparable and sets the benchmark for what we can call vulnerability. Jesus was subjected to scorn and shame. His birthplace was shabby and degrading. His hometown was disregarded, poor, and despised. His life was ridiculed, libeled, misunderstood, and envied. His death was dishonorable, cruel, and scandal-ridden. So what did his vulnerability get him? A cross. So when God acts, he does so in turn, intentionally, obscurely, and with relentless determination. He's loath to gloat about his plans and intentions. He hints at what he's doing because of his humility. And because of that, we pay little attention to what he says directly and clearly. Whether we admit it or not, we'd rather have a loud mouth than Jesus. He endures all this for one supreme reason. Love. His love had an end in such a way that it would not not cause self-destruction to his infantile reactionary children. He came in gentleness and kindness. So how do we comprehend God's agape? Well, we have to be connected to him deeply in the heart and let him love on you every single day. God in the flesh was anticipating the day when all of his beloved creation would be redeemed and joined, and rejoined to him in intimacy and loving friendship, just like it had been when he created this planet and populated it with two people, Adam and Eve. That plan has not changed, nor will it ever change. God does get his way in the end, but he's willing to sacrifice himself in the burning house to rescue his loved ones who happened to be the one that set the house on fire. Let's all stand. The Lord Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit love you, they love you, they love you, There is a love that you can never, ever comprehend. We will spend all of eternity, and when we've been there 10,000 years, we will have only just begun. And I think most of that beginning will be the comprehension of who God is to us and how much he cares for us. My desire for every person in this room is that you would fall into the great good heart God, heart of God. It is an endless ocean. One of the reasons we sing and one of the reasons we do poetry and one of the reasons we go on fast and one of the reasons we meditate on Scripture and some, some of the reasons we pray in the spirit, and the reasons we lay on our face on the carpet, sometimes we just lay in our bed and cry with tears, is because our minds are so corrupted, it's hard for them to get through that left brain. And I, I'm not against that. I, I just gave you half. Most of the time today was left brain stuff. But I'll, I'll just tell you something. He speaks spirit to spirit. The deepest part of you, are you paying attention to that? Are you listening? I, I can just tell you every day, I, I just I, I refuse to go through a day without trying to find one of those I love you I love you I've white knuckled it trying not to sin and I can just tell you that's a much harder way to do it than just to be in love with somebody Lord Jesus we, we just ask you to reveal your heart to us as a people Lord help us to really deeply love the people that we are in community with despite their misdeeds and phobias and irritating characteristics Lord let us love them for the essence of who they are and in the image of the creator God